Well, when Cindy Lou Who came face to face with Santa Claus, it was not what she was expecting. For it wasn't Santa at all, it was the Grinch. But what the Grinch was not expecting is that the people of Whoville would still celebrate Christmas and be happy even after he had taken everything. Kids, Christmas is only 28 days away. And today, we are going to get ready for Christmas by concluding our sermon series in the book of Job. Yes, I know. But don't worry, next week... Michael will be picking up his sermon series, and we will get to consider church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Well, Job had felt like God had ruined not just his Christmas, but his life. God had seemed more like the Grinch to Job than a good God of blessing. But today, Christmas comes early for Job. Job gets what his heart had longed for, what we considered last week. Job gets his day in court with the Lord. But instead of Job getting all his questions answered, the Lord actually comes with questions for Job. Not exactly what Job was expecting, but what he needed. Today, as we conclude our three-part sermon series in the book of Job, we're going to ask a simple question. What do you need most in your suffering? What do you need most in your suffering? I'd invite you to turn now in your Bibles to Job 38. You can find it on page 467 of your pew Bibles. If you brought your own Bible, uh, you can find Job to the left of the book of Psalms. So just kind of go to the middle. And go to the left, and you'll find the book of Job. My prayer is that as we wrap up this sermon series on Job, that we will endure in suffering just like Job does, uh, and, that, and that we will be able to endure. We know that we will be able to endure if we see the Lord for who he is. So what do you need most in your suffering? We need to see the Lord, the Lord of wisdom, the Lord of strength, and the Lord of blessing. That's my roadmap to where we'll be driving today. We need to see the Lord, the Lord of wisdom, the Lord of strength, and the Lord of blessing. First, we need to see the Lord of wisdom. The Lord of wisdom. Why is Job suffering the way he is? For 35 chapters, Job and his friends argue over this question. The three friends tell Job that he's guilty. Job just thinks that God probably hates him and that God has treated him unfairly, that God has even been unjust to him. But here in chapter 38, the principal swings open the door and a hush falls over the class. Look at Job 38 one with me. Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man when I question you. You will inform me. Job had some questions for God in his suffering, and he drew some ignorant conclusions about God because of his circumstances and his feelings, understandably, right? But God has come now to set the record straight. Job wished that he could summon the Lord into the courtroom, but the Lord summons Job and puts Job on the stand here. The all-wise God doesn't answer to people like Job. We answer to God. Now, Before we dive in further into these verses, let me just say, we need to understand God's posture towards Job as a sufferer. We need to acknowledge that it's not the bedside manner that we would expect from the God of all comfort, right? But listen to this. Job's biggest problem is not his suffering. 
Job's biggest problem is not his suffering. His biggest problem is not that he has lost all 10 of his children, all his possessions, his reputation, his health. Job's biggest problem is that in his suffering, he has come to wrong conclusions about God. So what Job needs most in his suffering is not exactly what you and I would expect. He is rushed into the emergency room for a condition that he doesn't even realize that he has. So listen carefully as I read a long passage of Scripture from Job 38, and consider as I read, is this how you expect the Lord to address Job in his suffering? Why would God tell a sufferer this? What's God's point? So be thinking that as I read, and I'd encourage you to follow along as we read from Job 38, starting in verse 4. This is the word of the Lord. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and total darkness its blanket, when I determined its boundaries and put its bars and doors in place, when I declared, you may come this far but no farther, your proud waves stop here? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn its place so it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it? The earth is changed as clay, as clay is by a seal. Its hills stand out like the folds of a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked, and the arm raised in violence is broken. Have you traveled to the sources of the sea or walked in the depths of the oceans? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where's the road to the home of light? Do you know where darkness lives so that you can lead it back to its border? Are you familiar with the path to its home? Don't you know? You were already born. You have lived so long. Have you entered the place where the snow is stored? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I hold in reserve for times of trouble for the day of warfare and battle? What road leads to the place where light is dispersed? Where is the source of the east wind that spreads across the earth? Who cuts a channel for the flooding rain or clears the way for lightning to bring rain on an uninhabited land on a desert with no human life to satisfy the parched wasteland and cause the grass to sprout? Does the rain have a father? Who fathered the drops of dew? Whose womb did the ice come from? Who gave birth to the frost of heaven when water becomes as hard as stone and the surface of the watery depths is frozen? Can you fasten the chains of the Pleiades or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the constellations in their season and lead the bear and her cubs? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you impose its authority on earth? Can you command the clouds so that the flood of water covers you? Can you send out lightning bolts and they go? Do they report to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the heart or gave the mind understanding? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds? Or who can tilt the waters of heaven when the dust hardens like cast metal and the clods of dirt stick together? Here in chapter 38, the Lord challenges Job that he doesn't have the wisdom to run this world. It is God alone who created the universe and who sustains the universe by the word of his power and wisdom. The book of Proverbs agrees. Proverbs 3 says, The Lord founded the earth by wisdom and established the heavens by understanding, by his knowledge the watery depths broke open and the clouds dripped with dew. We're not going to read chapter 39, 
but you can skim through chapter 39 even now and see God's wisdom to provide for lions, ravens, mountain goats, donkeys, oxen, an ostrich, a horse, a hawk, an eagle. He is demonstrating that every facet of his creation, every corner of the created order, from the baby eagle to the unhatched eggs of an ostrich are under his sovereign and wise control. It seems random, this random catalog of of animals, but the Lord is saying, I sustain everything. The Lord's saying to Job, essentially, this is what I've been doing since long before you were born. Since the beginning of time, I have been caring for all the created order. What have you been up to, Job? Oh, that's right. You've been accusing me of not ordering the world according to your liking. You know, these chapters in the book of Job uh, must have been the inspiration for the well-known movie Bruce Almighty, where God's character, or the, the, where God is played by Morgan Freeman, and he hands the reins of the world over to Jim Carrey's character, who assumes that he would make a better God than God. I actually haven't seen the movie, but this is what people tell me. Even that movie is a good reminder that it is a good thing that we are not in charge. And certainly this text is a reminder as we go through God's creation and see God's sovereign wisdom to uphold even the smallest, seemingly insignificant thing. But here's the thing. In our suffering, in our pain, we often assume that we would make a better God than God. But listen to how Job responds after his first day in court, because it's instructive for, I think, how we should respond to God when we are tempted to think that we could do things better. So let's look at Job 40, verse 1. The Lord answered Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him, get, let him who argues with God give an answer. Then Job answered the Lord, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not reply. Twice, but now I can add nothing. Again, Job and his suffering suggested by even his questions that he would make a better ruler of the universe when it came to his own life than God. But now Job has gotten the picture. Uh, He's silent, and that's the beginning of wisdom. Humble silence before God's word, recognizing that God is God and we are not. I wonder if you have ever said something to the effect in your own life of, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a few questions for God. You know, I'm going to want to know the important things like, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Or could God make a rock so big that he couldn't move it? Or more seriously, God, why didn't you save my grandfather? But when we see God, I don't think we're going to waltz in like we own the place with our list of questions. What we see here in Job's response is humble silence. We will fall on our faces, we will be humbled by the Lord's wisdom and our lack of wisdom in his presence. When Job says that he is insignificant, he's not like, he doesn't have bad self-esteem. He's not saying, oh, I'm worthless. But compared to the Lord's wisdom, his wisdom is nothing. It is insignificant. As we considered last week, the Lord was silent in Job's suffering for a long time. And then he speaks what we just heard from his word in Job 38 and then 39. It's not exactly what we would have expected God to say. We wouldn't have expected him to talk for a while about an ostrich. 
But the point is this. God alone sustains the universe in our lives by his sovereign wisdom. God alone sustains the universe in our lives by his sovereign wisdom. Our pain can lead to pride. Pain can produce pride. In our suffering, we don't like how God is running slash ruining our lives. But that is not fear of the Lord. Instead of pain producing pride, pain must lead to praise. Pain must lead to praise. We praise God in our suffering because he alone is God and praise God that we are not. He alone is wise. So I'd encourage you, when you see the beauty of God, the wonder of his creation, consider how his wisdom is sustaining all of it. He is upholding it. From the gravitational pull of the sun to the earth perfectly tilted on its axis to a sparrow providing for her young, God is sustaining all of this. And he sustains your life not least of which he is sustaining in his wisdom every detail of your life. Every circumstance, every relationship, nothing is out of order. It may seem like it. It might seem that your life has gone off the rails. But do you believe that God is ordering your life according to his sovereign wisdom? Do you trust his wisdom today, even maybe in a dark hour that you might find yourself in this morning. You know, I know that sometimes it's not necessarily God's wisdom and his control that we have a hard time trusting, but it's like man's interpretation of that. So like the things that I am saying from God's words, I don't know if I can trust you. You're just a man just like me. I remember uh, actually a conversation I had had in ninth grade with uh, the, guy, the kid sitting next to me in my ninth grade computer class. I asked him, for some reason, I asked the guy sitting next to me if he believed in God and if he was a Christian. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said something like, I can't believe that we, with our small, puny brains, could fathom an all-powerful God. Wow. He thought we were too small to figure out the, the, the mighty, majestic power of, like a, a, of a higher power. And he's right. We can't figure him out on our own. But God revealed himself to us in his word. He has spoken. And when he speaks, he puts us in our place. And he's revealed himself ultimately in the person of his son. This is what the Apostle Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So if you find yourself here today and you don't trust the wisdom of God in your life, You don't trust God's word to be good for you or wise for you. Well, I have an invitation for you today. Today is the day to die to your pride. Today is the day to turn from your own pride and trust in what Scripture calls the foolishness of the cross. It's foolishness according to man's wisdom but it is the power of God for salvation to all who repent and believe. So today is the day. Today is the day to die to pride and to trust in the wisdom of God. When you take that step to put your hands, to put your life in the hands of an all-wise God, you have the opportunity, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, to be a part of the church where together, the way we care for one another displays the manifold wisdom of God to the unseen spiritual powers and authorities in the universe. What amazing wisdom of God to do this.
Well, whether you find yourself trusting in God's wisdom or in your own wisdom, wisdom according to your own reason, we all have to admit that we're all looking for wisdom, and God has revealed his wisdom in the cross. We tend to be proud of our own wisdom, our own understanding, but real wisdom begins by shutting our mouths and listening to God, listening to him speak and realizing that God alone is God and we are not. So what would a church look like that is entrusting itself to God's wisdom? What would it look like for us together to grow in this kind of humility? We're not, we're not operating according to worldly wisdom or what seems best to us, but where we're beginning by listening to the word of the Lord. Well, I think it would, it would uh, impact how we even listen to the preaching of God's word, how we prepare ourselves Do we come expectant that God is going to speak to us on Sunday mornings and every morning that we open God's word? I think it will impact the way that we listen to one another. Are you like me sometimes in conversations that when someone else is speaking, you're just thinking of what you're going to say next and you're not really listening? You know, humble wisdom is having a posture of listening, a humility that you don't have all the answers that maybe someone has something to say that would be useful for you. I think a church that's characterized by trusting uh, the wisdom of God is not insisting on our own rights and insisting on being heard. It's not insisting that we speak our truth to power, but we submit ourselves to God's good wisdom even when everything in us wants to rebel against that even when we want to fight for our rights and we don't want to feel like a doormat. But are you trusting yourself in relationships, in the church, and when it comes to God's word, to an all-wise God? You know, just a minute ago, we installed Kelly as our newest deacon and Steve as our newest elder. Here's a great way that you can pray for Steve and for Kelly and for all our deacons and elders that we would be characterized by humility, that we would be characterized by first listening to what God has to say, because he alone is God. And so often we live like we are the ones in charge of our lives. Well, God doesn't merely reveal his sustaining wisdom when he speaks to Job, but he reveals his restraining strength So he doesn't only reveal his sustaining wisdom, but his restraining strength. And that's what we're going to turn to second, the Lord of strength. And and again, let me just pause before we dive into the, the next scripture reading that I haven't suffered like many of you have, probably like even most of you have. I have never yet lost a parent, a child, or a spouse. But I'll say this. I've walked alongside many of you when you have experienced great loss. And you know what's one of the most humbling things about walking through darkness, walking through suffering and trials with with you, my brothers and sisters? You know, here's, here's one thing I in particularly learned when my wife Ashley lost her dad is I can't bring him back. I can't fix it. I can't make the pain go away. I can't restrain sin and death. I can't keep bad things from happening to you or to this church. You know, I would love it if I had the power to say, we're going to take a year, even a decade off from practicing church discipline. That would be great. But I cannot restrain sin. I'm not strong enough. So with that in mind, let's turn to Job where we left off. Job chapter 40 starting in verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and splendor, and clothe yourself with honor and glory. Pour out your raging anger. Look on every proud person and humiliate him. 
Look on every proud person and humble him. Trample the wicked where they stand. Hide them together in the dust. Imprison them in the grave. Then I will confess to you that your own right hand can deliver you. Once again, God challenges Job. All right, you have a turn. You play God. You practice justice. Earlier he had said, if you're, you're not wise enough to sustain even the life of a horse, an eagle, an ox, much less your life. But now God says to Job, you're not strong enough to practice justice, to punish evil. Next, the Lord concludes his speeches to Job by describing the strength of two horrible, terrible adversaries. Essentially, God is saying to Job, if you want to be God, you're going to have to contend with the two most deadly beasts in all of creation, behemoth and Leviathan. So I want you to listen next to Job chapter 40, verse 15, and instead of trying to figure out the identity of behemoth, consider what is God's point, regardless of the identity of this horrible creature. Verse 15 of chapter 40, look at behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like cattle. Look at the strength of his back and the power and the muscles of his belly. He stiffens his tail like a cedar tree, and the tendons of his thighs are woven firmly together. His bones are bronze tubes. His limbs are like iron rods. He is the foremost of God's works. Only his maker can draw the sword against him. The hills yield food for him, while all sorts of wild animals play there. He lies under the lotus plants, hiding in the protection of marshy reeds. Lotus plants cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Though the river rages, Behemoth is unafraid. He remains confident even if the Jordan surges up to his mouth. Can anyone capture him while he looks on or pierce his nose with snares? Okay, I'll admit, it's hard to not try to guess what behemoth is. So we'll just clear that out of the way. Many think behemoth, what's being described here in these verses, is a hippopotamus. Um, I think it's funny what the, the Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw humorously responded to the theory that behemoth is a hippopotamus. He said that if God is challenged about his justice and his providence, he really needs to do better than retort to Job, well, can you make a hippopotamus? You can't do that, can you? Just as God created the, the serpent... And Satan took that form to talk to Eve in the garden. So behemoth here is, yes, an animal that's being described, maybe even a hippo. But it's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than just an animal. Behemoth is evidence in nature of a dark power rooted in the natural world. I think behemoth is a symbol for death and evil. I'm not saying that's all behemoth is, but it's more than a hippo. And if you disagree, that's fine. You can talk to me at the door. But I think we can all agree that at least God is saying, Job, if you're in charge, you'll have behemoth to contend with. You'll have to deal with this beast. And it's clear that Job is in over his head. But behemoth isn't the only beast that Job finds himself overmatched with. The entire chapter of Job 41 is devoted to the deadliest beast of them all, Leviathan. Just like Behemoth is more than a hippo, you won't be surprised to find that I think Leviathan is more than, say, a crocodile or Nessie from Loch Ness. Look at Job 41, verse 25. The Lord says this about Leviathan. When Leviathan rises, the mighty, could also be translated, the angels are terrified. They withdraw because of his thrashing. I don't think angels are afraid of crocodiles. So who is this? Who is this terrible beast? Well, let's step back a minute. Isn't it strange in the story of Job that Satan appears so prominently in the narrative section in chapters 1 and 2, and then we turn to the poetry section of Job, and these dialogues, and it seems like Satan just disappears. Where'd he go? 
Did he go after someone else? I don't think so. Leviathan is mentioned at the bookends of the poetry. So here in the final chapter of the poetry in chapter 41, as well as in chapter 3, when Job calls on Leviathan to undo creation and curse the day of his birth. So we have bookends of this mysterious beast, Leviathan, in chapters 3 and chapters 41. What's going on here? What's the point? I think the Lord is unmasking the greatest power in all the created order. And he's saying, Job, you're not strong enough to contain this evil, and particularly this evil one. You are no match for the evil one, for Satan. But I can. He is on my leash, and he will do no more than I say. And doesn't that fit with what we saw in Job 1 and 2? Even as a child, growing up in a conservative Christian home, I was told not to mess with the powers of darkness. I I remember even being told, don't even play with Ouija boards, which may sound silly to us, but I think there is a lesson here. So often we assume that we can manage and control what we don't fully understand. We may become curious about things online or things in the occult, but there are evil forces at work in this world that we cannot control. And we should be humble enough to recognize that. You know, earlier we heard a scripture reading from 1 Peter from our brother Nate, where the evil one is pictured as a roaring lion looking to devour. Do we live like the evil one is after us, seeking to entangle us in our sin and our self-deception? Well, after the Lord's majestic and fearful words to Job, we see Job respond one more time. Look with me at chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked me, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words and am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. Well, friends, we have heard reports of this Lord. You're sitting here now. I look across this room and I see many who have spent many Sundays in church. We have heard reports of him, but have you heard from him? Have you seen him? Not physically, but with eyes of faith as you listen to what he has to say to you in his word. We see that those who really see the Lord fear him. They humbly repent, as we see Job do here. They turn from the sin of pride and daily recognize that though there is so much that we don't understand, the Lord is God alone. We make bad gods. You know, last Sunday evening in our congregational meeting, I encouraged us to bring our sin into the light rather than knowing God's just judgment on the final day. I want to say a few more words about that in light of what we see here in Job. In times of pain, in times of suffering, it is so much easier to hide. It's so much easier to turn to evil, sometimes with intentions of just wanting the pain to go away. You know, it made me think of Frodo and Lord of the Rings with the Ring of Power. 
He was tempted to, to give up. And we can be tempted to give ourselves to the one who is waging war against our souls. That's not what we think we're doing, but we just want rest. We just grow tired of fighting against our sin. But the enemy will not give us the rest that we long for. The enemy means nothing but our destruction and our eternal misery. But when we hide our sin by minimizing it, by rationalizing it, by not telling the truth, we put ourselves in great spiritual danger. We think that we can manage behemoth. We think that we've got Leviathan on a leash, but we can't handle it. They will handle us. So I'd encourage you, if you've been lying to God, to yourself, to others, come into the light and recognize that you are no match for the powers and the sin that rages against your soul. Coming into the light will be embarrassing. It will be awkward. It will be blinding. But what we, what we need in our sin and our struggles is not ultimately more self-control. If we can just get a stronger leash, if we can just have stronger hands to say no to the things of this world that threaten to undo us. No, what we need is what Job needed. He needed to see God. He needed to hear from him, the Lord who is strong enough to bring us out of our miserable slavery to sin and to bring us into the life that we were intended to live with him. So friends, only Christ can deliver us from the powers of darkness. Only Christ can deliver you from maybe those things that you just call bad habits or everybody makes mistakes. But that is pride thinking that we can manage. But we don't fully understand the one who's seeking to shipwreck our faith. The good news is this. At the cross, again, Paul tells us that in Colossians 2 that the Lord disarmed the authorities and rulers and disgraced them publicly, triumphing over them in Christ. We've been singing about that today. That's our hope. That at the cross, we are forgiven. We come into the light, and though we are sinners, we are forgiven. The Lord accepts us as his son. The cross is the only place that we can find victory over sin and hope in death. You won't win the battle versus your sin on your own. In our suffering, in our sin, we need a vision of the Lord of strength, who not only restrains evil, but conquers over it through the humble death of his son. Well, friends, we have considered what we need most in our suffering is to see the Lord, the Lord of wisdom, the Lord of strength. But the wonder of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, is that the Lord uses that wisdom and that strength that can at it feels like here at the beginning of this section of Scripture, like God is just saying to Job, just sit down and shut up. Feels like that, but we see the Lord using his wisdom and strength for our good, for our blessing. He comes to bless us, to restore us, and he does that by giving, him, giving us himself. So that's what we're going to consider third and finally, the Lord of blessing. Look at Job chapter 42, starting in verse 7. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Then Eliphaz the Temnite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. 
Well, we've considered how God put Job in his place in chapters 38 through 41. But now God says that Job has spoken what is right of him as opposed to the three stooges, the the three friends. Job recognized, even in his ignorance, that the Lord was the only place to go in his suffering. Even though Job came to some wrong conclusions about God and his justice, as we considered last week, Job, Job was going to God alone for vindication and for the hope of redemption. That was his hope. And then also he spoke right of God in his repentance, right, that we considered uh, in two places. He repents in dust and ashes for his pride. But the Lord is angry with Job's friends because they treated the Lord, as opposed to Job, as like a system, a plug and play, you know? If, uh, if you do good, God will reward you. If you do evil, you know, he, he, in this life, you will be cursed. There was little worship in their hearts, in the hearts of the three friends. There was little awe at the, at the wonder and the mystery of God. They had used God to condemn Job and to feel good about themselves because, like, they weren't suffering, so we must be righteous. But God in his mercy, even for those proud religious, like, Pharisees of Job's three friends, he still provides a way. He still has compassion on them, even when they had sought to use God. And the Lord sees fit to use Job as a mediator. Did you notice that? Why would he do this? Why wouldn't God just say, hey, uh, guys, you, you said tons of wrong stuff about me. You should really repent. And if you pray and turn from it, then I'll forgive you. Why, why go to the sacrifice and the mediation of Job? I think even here, early on in the redemptive story, the Lord is teaching us something about himself. Sin separates us from God. We need someone to stand in our place as the innocent righteous one, uh, to plead our case before a holy God because of how sin creates a chasm between us and the Lord. And God delights to use Job. Job is still suffering at this point, but he calls Job to do a job. And remember how the Lord had bragged on Job in chapters 1 and 2? My servant Job, who fears God and turns away from evil. Well, here he is again, saying like four times in verses 8 and 9, I think, my servant Job, my servant Job. The Lord appoints his servant to make a way for a renewed relationship, even with these religious hypocrites. And the Lord, verse 9, accepted the prayer of a servant so those who were far off from God could come near. So those who were speaking wrongly about God could be restored. Again, just as we considered in Job chapter 1, we saw Job praying for his children in case they had sinned and offering sacrifice for them. And here he is again at the end, praying for his friends. I think in Job we see a shadow of one who was to come, who would offer not only a prayer, but offer himself as the sacrifice for sinners. For religious people like you and me, who seek to use God at times to feel good about ourselves. For rebels, for people who are hiding their sin. For those who come to wrong conclusions about God in their words and their thoughts, thinking that God owes them something that they're entitled to a prosperous or a happy or a healthy life free of pain and suffering, and we get angry at God because he hasn't provided that. We are, all of us, sinners, and God offers a mediator. He offers a righteous, innocent servant to pray for us, and those who are enemies could be called friends. Just as Christ himself prayed on the cross when he was being crucified, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Well, Job concludes with a storybook ending at the end of chapter 42. I'd encourage you to read it later in verses 10 through 17. You know, many conclude that this, uh, that this ending was added on later for like Disney culture or something. It was uh, to give that happily ever after feel at the end. 
But maybe I think we're missing the point if we read verses 10 through 17 with cynicism, because at least the Apostle James found this ending instructive to us today. Uh, So listen to what James says in James chapter 5. He says, see, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. What's the outcome that the Lord brought about for Job? It wasn't ultimately giving him 10 more children or giving him double of all his possessions. What the Lord was doing is he was showing Job, as in the words of James 5, that he is compassionate and merciful. We serve a God of blessing. Job's friends weren't much help in Job enduring and remaining steadfast and persevering through suffering. Dogma, academic theology, didn't help Job much. Trusting this theology that God makes prosperous in, those, in this life, those who he approves of, that didn't help Job much. Prosperity gospel theology didn't help Job, certainly not. There's only one thing that helped Job in his suffering. There's only one thing. There is only one thing that Job really needed in his suffering. He needed to see God. He needed to see the Lord. He needed to hear from heaven. And what he needed to hear from heaven is not what you would have expected. He didn't need to hear the why. He needed to catch a vision of the who. Job ultimately never finds out why he suffered in the way he did. But at least in this life, he didn't need to. He needed a vision of the Lord of wisdom, the Lord of strength, and the Lord of blessing, the one who uses all of that to bless his children, his friends, with compassion and mercy, the one who delights in his servant and accepts the prayer of our mediator to not treat us according to our folly and our pride. Is that what you think you need in your suffering? A vision of God? You know, it's easy to assume that when what we need most in our suffering is maybe what Job gets in the end. You know, if it could just all be over with and I can have this blessing, 10 children, riches, restored reputation. But those blessings were, again, pointing to something greater and eternal. Job is, still dies. That's how it ends. Job dies, just like all of us will. And it will be a hard road for us until that time when we close our eyes to this life and open them to the next. So what do you need to endure until the final day? What do you need to endure in faith like Job? Do you think you need, well, I just need to distract myself from this pain? Better techniques, coping mechanisms, the things of this world, a religious system, knowing the answers to my questions, comforting myself with things that actually God doesn't say or that we don't know. No, none of those things will do. We should know that by now. The Lord has appeared and the Lord has spoken. He has revealed himself to us, not so that we could have him pegged, not so that we could have him figured out, but so that we might repent of our pride and in our suffering worship. Well, friends, it's time to conclude this brief series in the book of Job. We have seen what Job needed most in his suffering is not what we would have expected. He needed to be rebuked. He needed to be brought into repentance for his words of ignorance, and ultimately he needed to see the Lord. He needed to be reminded of who God is. He needed to be restored into a right relationship with God who is sovereign over all things, including suffering. So, Henson, as we conclude, we should thank God because he has blessed us. He has shown himself to us to be a God of blessing. Yet, if we're honest, at times, it feels like he's cursed us. 
maybe not this church, but as you think about the hard things in your life. And when you feel that way, we need to listen to him speak. We need to be silent and hear him speak from heaven and see all that God is for us in his wisdom, his strength, and his blessing in the person of his son. If you have him, you have everything you need. Is he enough for you? Is he enough for you in your suffering? Let's pray that he would be more than enough for us, that he would be our everything. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that so often in our pain and our trials and our suffering, we do all kinds of things to help ourselves feel better. And in humility, we confess this morning that those things may work for a little while, but in the end, we are back where we started until the next trial, until the next temptation, until the next loss. Lord, it often feels like you don't care. But Lord, when it feels that way, we pray that you would help us to see you, your son, by your spirit, that you would reveal to us his beauty, his wisdom, his strength, his blessing also that we could be treated not as our folly deserves, not as our sin deserves, but we could be treated as your friends. So Lord, we even give you thanks for our suffering. We hate it. We want it to go away. But Lord, we thank you for our suffering for the way it weans us off the things of this world and causes us to look to you. So Lord, in the darkness, help us to be desperate for more of you, to see you for who you are. Lord, we pray that as a church, we would encourage one another, not just with temporary fixes, but what we need most. And we thank you for how you have provided that through your word, through your son. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.